Father, take these words today and multiply them to your people. Lead them into green pasture and give them rest. Lift our heads, encourage our hearts, strengthen us, Lord, that we might with Paul even find ourselves uh, engaged and enthusiastic about the reality of our passing from this life to the next. Nothing but nothing could make that so except that Christ has come. He has paid for sins. He has accomplished all righteousness. He has raised from the grave. And he has promised to all who would hope in him that we too would be with him where he is. And Lord, that is our great joy. Teach us this morning, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21 reads this way, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a statement. It is this very succinct statement really that Paul gives us his testimony, a very abbreviated testimony, but a testimony nonetheless. Really, it's a very good way to answer the question, what is it to be a Christian? The answer to that question can be briefly summated in this. To be a Christian is to find that for you to live is Christ. And for you to die is gain. Now, last week we spent our time unfolding what Paul meant when he said, for to me to live is Christ, and that message is available to you on the website if you're so inclined. But this morning we want to focus as we come to the table on this second half of that great testimony. We want to approach asking the question, how can this kind of confidence, the confidence the Apostle Paul had as he faced the potential of his death, as he was imprisoned and he was bound to Roman centurions with the very real possibility that sometime in the very near future his head would be severed from his body. How is it that he can say in the face of all of that that for him death is gain? A couple of weeks ago we noted that when others were in difficult circumstances, it wasn't enough to simply say to them, rejoice always. We, we made the point that what people really need when they're in dire circumstances is to understand biblically why they should rejoice always. And so it is this morning as we stare death in the eye, it is not enough to tell one another, don't fear, but we must encourage one another in helping one another understand biblically why we should not fear in the face of death. Christ came, beloved, to free us from the fear of death. I want to say it again. Christ came, yes, to save you, but it is also stated very clearly in Scripture, we will see it, that one of the purposes in his coming... One of the purposes in his saving you, that you would be no longer dominated by a fear of death, but that you might even embrace it as a servant. 
For the Christian, death is not filled with panic. For the Christian, death is not something to be met with a stiff upper lip. For the Christian, death is is not something that we merely resign ourselves to as inevitable. No, the Bible is clear that God actually fluffs the pillow for the believer in death, knowing that it only gives way to life in Christ. A life more glorious than we can even imagine. A life that no matter what your acquaintance with the Bible is, what your acquaintance with the truth is, no matter how much time and how many books you have read written by men on heaven, you have no grasp of the glory that is coming. Death does, in fact, become a servant to the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who ushers us right into the presence of Christ And my hope this morning as we contemplate our gain in death that you might find yourself strengthened even as you consider the inevitability of your death and beyond that that you would find your fears quieted and your heart comforted and your enthusiasm for heaven and for being with your Savior peaked. Beloved, to die for the Christian is gain. Paul wrote those words very personally for himself. He also wrote those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This isn't just Paul's wish. This isn't just Paul's mindset on this thing. This is truth for the Christian. This is scripture. And the word is, again, is supplied by the translators. Remember last week that Paul said, for to me, to live Christ. He adds to that, to die, gain. For dramatic effect. To live Christ, to die, gain. Now gain speaks of significant profit. It speaks of a profound advantage. It speaks to the benefit of the believer. Needless to say, this is not the way we tend to think, nor does our world about death. We tend to think about uh, uh, death and we tend to talk about death in light of loss. She lost her battle with cancer. I lost my father. And at one level, there is no doubt, it is loss. Death is a terrible Reality. It is bleak and it is black. It is a foreign intruder into God's created order. It was not there to begin with. It entered in with sin. It temporarily breaks our union of body and soul. It separates us from loved ones. It shatters homes. It shatters dreams. It shatters plans. It takes people away to places where we cannot reach them or talk with them. And if we're honest, apart from Christ, death is nothing short of terrifying. You have only to look at the last couple of years under COVID to understand the death grip that death has on this world. This is not the way the Bible frames death for the Christian, however. The Bible speaks of the death of a Christian in terms of blessing and profit and joy. 
And the Apostle Paul here summarizes what amounts to the Christian's perspective on death. For to me, to die is gain. Paul was actually eagerly anticipating the day of his departure. He knew it might be drawing near, and therefore he is eager to see it. And you've got to ask the question, how could Paul, in good conscience, say that death is gain? Well, there are many who look at this and say that really what Paul means is, you know, Paul had a rough life. Paul suffered a lot at the hands of many people. Paul even now is bound and he is suffering and there isn't much hope for the promise of this world in Paul's life. And so Paul simply is saying this, look, in a condition like mine, it's beneficial to die. It would be better to die. Friends, that is fatalistic and that is short-sighted. I can't help but think that Paul means far, far more than this. Just as I said last week, if he lives, life will always be for him, Christ and Christ alone. Paul was completely satisfied in his relationship with Christ. And so it is in death that if he dies, well, all the better because the fullness of my faith will be sight and I will be with the Lord whom I love. This morning, I want to give you seven death benefits of the believer. Seven death benefits for the believer. Seven reasons that you, brother, you, sister, can look forward to the day of your departure. What is gained at the death of a Christian? Number one, when you die, you will live in a perfect place. You will live in a perfect place. You understand that, that you were saved for a place. You were predestined, were you not, to salvation. And doesn't the word predestined assume a destination? You were saved for a place. And when you die, when the believer dies, you do not cease to exist. You are not reincarnated according to what you've done in this life. There is no such thing as karma. There is no purgatory for the purging of sins. There is not one moment of unconsciousness whatsoever. There is no soul sleep. For the believer, death in this life is but a springboard into the immediacy of the fullest life that you have ever known. This isn't a departure from life, beloved, so much as it is a departure to life as you've never known it. And for the Christian, it is not death to die. David knew full well, though walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that what? He would dwell in the house of the Lord, how long? Forever. Beloved, in an instant, you will go from life among the dying to life among the living. Death is but an uber to heaven, to a place. Listen to Jesus. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and 
receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus speaks in spatial language. I go to prepare a place, and he speaks in relational language, that you might be with me there. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me be with me where I am. Beloved, it cannot be said enough that this fallen world is not our home. And if you're a Christian, you know it full well. The older you get and the longer you're in the Lord, the more you understand it. What is the language of Scripture? Here we are aliens, strangers, looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. Our citizenship, writes Paul in Philippians 3.20, is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This world is passing away, and also its lusts. This world is but corruption and decay, and in heaven, brother and sister, there is none of that. It is utterly incorruptible. It is bulletproof, bombproof, decay-proof. It is a perfect place. And beyond that, I would say to you that heaven will prove to you to be the most perfect place you have ever known. There will be no goodbyes and no brokenness. There will be no aging and no funerals, no divorce. There will be no disease, no emptiness, no spiritual struggle, no taxes. There will be nothing, nothing ever to have to repaint. I like that. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8, while we are home in the body. Listen to that language. While we are home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and home with the Lord. Most of us can relate to that sentiment, yes, that there is no place like home. Have you thought about that verse or this verse in light of that statement? I tell you, when you pass from this life and into the next, you will never have felt as, as at home as you will then. You will feel more at home than in your mother's kitchen. You, you will have never felt so fitted for a place in your entire life. You will never have felt such a sense of belonging. Heaven will not be a place for you or for me that will take some time to get used to. It will never be a place that, that, that somehow we're mixed with this sense of homesickness for a world that we once knew and the things that were once familiar. None of that will exist in you. No, something is always off in this life, but not there. We are sojourners and we are aliens and we are strangers here. There we will be, as Jeff put it this morning, family at the table, dwelling in perfect, uninterrupted fellowship and unity 
in the household of God. There's more. Number two, when you die, you will experience renewed fellowship with the saints. You will be reunited with loved ones as at a reunion. Grandpa and Grandma Witt will be there. Uncles John and Jerry will be there. My dear Aunt Norma will be there. Ted and Marilyn are there. Marion is there. Lyle is there. Jimmy is there. Leaf is there. Holly is there. Chris is there. And I ask you, who is it for you? Beloved, dwell on these things. Go forward in sanctified imagination and anticipate this promised reunion. Think of it. Who is it for you? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Elijah, Paul, Peter, David, John, Lazarus. Martha is there. All the Marys of the New Testament are there. Rahab is there. Lydia is there. Ruth is there. Hannah is there. Who would you like to meet? Who would you like to rejoice with and lift up the the praises of the Messiah with? They'll be there. It will be a veritable who's who of the kingdom of God. I love that when Paul wanted to comfort the church at Thessalonica, he reminded them, if if you want to be comforted about those who've gone ahead of us, just dwell on this, that he, Jesus, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord No more departures, nothing but joy. What is the outcome of our salvation? Well, only this, a a perfect place in perfect relationships. There's a third outcome of your faith in the face of death. When you die, you will receive your everlasting inheritance. The Christian's reward by and large is found not in this world, but in the next. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. In this world, we know that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, in fact, suffer persecution. That's the way it goes for God's people in this world. In this world, pride dominates, power dominates, wealth dominates. Those are the things that move the masses. Those are the things that the world applauds. But in his world, humility and meekness and righteousness will be exalted. For believers in this world, it is the cross before the crown, but Paul says when Christ comes, there will be a crown of righteousness that will be rewarded to him on that day by Jesus, the righteous judge, but not only to him, but to all those who love his appearing. Beloved, are you eager and do you love the appearing of Christ? Are you waiting? Are you contemplating these realities as you bump into the the hurdles of this life? It is then that every believer's praise will come from God on that day, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. 
It is in that day that we will receive, as Peter put it, an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, reserved in heaven for you. It is on that day, the day of your death, that you will hear the Lord Jesus Christ as he, as he awards you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. We will reap, brothers and sisters, the dividends of all the treasure that we have stored up in heaven where moth and rust cannot get at them and thieves cannot steal. Therefore, to die is gain. There is a fourth death benefit for the believer when you die, you will, in time, receive a glorified body. When you die in this earth, your spirit will be separated from your body. Your body will go into the ground and people will gather to, to remember you and to give thanks to the God who both made you and saved you. But beloved, though your body goes into the ground, you are not going into the ground. No, the Bible tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present where? With the Lord. You will be with the Lord in that day, instant heaven. When you exhale your, your last breath of earth's air, you will inhale the rarefied air of heaven. Gone, absolutely abolished, will be all suffering and sorrow. From that moment forward, there will be no death and no disease, no dementia, no Alzheimer's, no strokes, no broken hips, no pain, no dentists, no fillings, no crowns, no decline, no decay, no infirmity at all. In time, in the resurrection, we will receive our glorified bodies. Look over at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, note this, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Dust to dust. How about the thousands upon thousands who have perished at sea? Their physical bodies cast to the current. And yet Christ will, with the power that he had to make you in the first place, will reconstitute and give you a new body to join with that spirit Brothers and sisters, we shall not be naked, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Flip over there. 1 Corinthians 15 and chapter 22, or verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. 
And after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. He's speaking of the resurrection. Christ was the first fruits. He was raised from the dead. And we who are Christ, we who belong to Christ at his coming, when he comes, the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, he must rule until he has put all enemies under his feet. And in that day, he will in fact put death under his feet finally once and forever. Look over at verse 42. He's speaking of the glory of various created things. There's verse 41, the glory of the sun and another glory of the moon. They're, they're distinctively different. One is brighter than the other. There's another glory of the stars and a star differs from star in glory. What's his point? He says, so it is, the re- so also is the resurrection of the dead. In other words, the comparison between this body and that body is is radically different. He says it is sown or planted, think about in farming terms here, it is planted as a perishable body, but it will be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, that's you now, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And then the spiritual, the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second is from heaven. As is the earthy so also are, the, are those who are earthy, and as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Now note the promise, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, that's you now in your physical body, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. What a promise. There are still more benefits, number five. When you die, you will be holy as God is holy. You will be holy as God is holy. There is a goal. There has been from the beginning. I don't know if you knew this. It wasn't just that you would enjoy the delights of heaven, but God had a goal, and that is to make you, in fact, holy in the likeness, the moral likeness of of God through Christ. Romans 8.29 speaks to the fact that we were predestined to a particular end, that is, to be conformed to the image of of Christ. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before him. He's not talking about you cleaning up your life and, and puttering around on this earth, working out the details of your salvation. While in fact we do need to do that, the believer follows Christ and we are increasingly sanctified in this life, the ultimate aim of that statement is that he has purposed through saving you that you would be in the end, in that day, holy and blameless. And don't miss those last words, before him. Colossians 1.22, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him 
holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Jude 24, the Lord will make us to stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. Listen to this, brothers, sisters, understand God's aim. He has saved you to make you like himself, to walk in righteousness and purity, and one day to be fully and completely holy as he is holy. Listen to this description from Hebrews 12, 23. He he speaks about the saints in heaven being described as, quote, the church of the firstborn who who are enrolled in heaven. And he further describes them as the spirits of the righteous made perfect. He is going to perfect and to complete what he has started in you. When you were saved, you were set free from death's penalty. You were set free from death's or sin's power. Sin, sin's penalty was paid for in Christ and sin's power over you was crushed. But still in this life we struggle, don't we, with the presence of sin in our everyday lives. And I will tell you that the moment that you die, you will be utterly free from sin. You will be utterly free from temptation. We sing it, we rejoice to sing it, don't we? The old hymn, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Your sin nature will be no more, and you will never again have a compulsion For any sin, your only compulsion will be for that which is right and true and good. Your inward appetite for sin will be removed and there will no longer be a spiritual tug of war in your soul fighting spirit against flesh. There will never be said of you again that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. The flesh will be no more, no longer any guilt, no longer any shame, no longer any need to confess anything before the Lord, no longer that discouragement that comes as you stumble yet again in this life. You will have a perfect spirit that will finally, for the first time ever, be free to worship the Lord Jesus Christ as you were designed to do, to serve him unhindered and without weariness forever and ever and ever. There is a sixth benefit. When you die, you will grow, get this, you will grow tremendously and immediately in the knowledge of God. How did Jesus describe eternal life in John 17, 3? This is eternal life, he said, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now catch this, pay attention to this, understand this, that eternal life is not speaking so much about time. It's not speaking about quantity of life so much as it speaks of quality of life. You have, even now, if you are in Christ, you are experiencing eternal life to a degree. That you have in part. It literally means that that the life of the age to come 
And in that sense, you and I are getting a taste of it here and now, and it's maybe never stronger than we're actually than when we're actually in church together worshiping Christ Himself. But this is the essence of eternal life, real life, true life. It is knowing God. And Paul had a consuming desire, didn't he? He stated it in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. In fact, if you've been paying attention over the past few years as we move through various books, you can just look over at Philippians 1.9 and see that Paul often is praying for us that we would grow in knowledge. Philippians 1.9 And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in what? Real knowledge and all discernment. You look over at Ephesians, just go back another book, and chapter 1, we find Paul praying again in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him and that your heart might be enlightened. You look over at Colossians chapter 1, right there on the other side of Philippians, and verse 9, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why is Paul always praying for knowledge for us? Because knowledge of God and knowledge of Christ and knowledge of, of, of the things above, all that knowledge, beloved, that is the way that you enjoy and delight in the eternal life that has been given to you. And with a growth in knowledge comes a growth of, of, of appreciation of that life, a depth that will come to you in your experience of eternal life. There are those who remain shallow in their faith, who don't know much about the truth, and I tell you that their experience of, e, of eternal life in this life is less than the one who is more mature and has a greater understanding of the word of God and knows God better. You can know a better life, truly, in this life by knowing God more deeply. But beloved, (laughs) there'll be nothing like that day. There will be nothing like that day. Paul says in this day we see in a mirror dimly, but then on that day, what? Face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know, hear this, fully as I am known fully. Brothers, sisters, when you die, you will immediately understand more about God than you have ever understood in this life. Immediately. You will have divinity in high death. It will be transformative immediately, and it will be utterly, utterly satisfying. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And our greatest joy, will it not be to see our Lord and Savior face to face, to see him with perfect clarity, to behold him in glory and majesty? 
What a day that will be. No wonder Paul said, to die is gain. Well, there is one final and glorious death benefit for the believer, and this really gets to the heart of what what Paul is getting at here in Philippians. When you die, you will find yourself immediately in the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will not only be with him, but you will have an intensified communion with him. In other words, death means a deeper relationship with Jesus. Paul was certain, wasn't he? Didn't he tell us that in the book of Romans? He was absolutely certain that death could not separate him from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there is nothing in this created world that could separate him from from this guaranteed meeting with the one who had saved him. Which is why, if you look down in Philippians 1 and verse 23, as we'll see in the weeks ahead... Paul is hard-pressed to know whether he should live and remain on serving Christ or whether he should die and go to be with Jesus. And he says, he says, having this desire. See, this was the longing of his heart. What was it? Well, to depart and to be with Christ. That's very much better, he says. Now, there's a sense to be sure that we even now have Christ, yes? Paul, in fact, said that. You remember in Galatians 2.20 that, that for him, he was crucified with Christ and it was no longer he who lived, but Christ who lived in him. Certainly, Paul knew Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We know that. In Romans 8, 9, and 10, we read that every believer has the Spirit of Christ. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you are none of his You're not a believer. Every believer has Jesus to a degree, but there's another sense in in the scripture that anticipates a a fuller experience and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Colossians speaks in chapter 1 and verse 27 about Christ in you, get this, the hope of glory. What's he saying? Christ is in you, yes, but he's leading you to something even greater. There is a hope, isn't there, of a more glorious ending to all of this, that we will be united and utterly in perfect fellowship with our Lord and Savior. It's in death that that hope is realized. The day of your death will leave you nothing of this world or of your flesh that will stand between you and your Lord. There will be no sin, there will be no hindrance, there will be no shame. There will be nothing but perfect communion with Christ. And I can't emphasize it enough. It will be immediate. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Beloved, again, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is nothing in between those those two things. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. It's immediate, and your faith will be sight, and you will be fully conscious in the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have not seen, and yet you love him. 
I know that. Peter knew that, which is why he was able to articulate it to the church. We know the love that exists in the heart of the believer for his Savior. Our hope is steadfast on him. And this is why Paul says that death for him is gain and why it will be gain for everyone who professes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and has come to him in faith and repentance. My friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the the Bible paints a very different picture about death and a very different picture about the eternal state. You will live forever, but it will not be in a state of glory. It will be in a state of agony and under judgment and condemnation in a place called the lake of fire, where the worm does not die, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Bible speaks about it in terrifying and and lonely and isolating fashion by referring to it as the blackness of darkness. My friend, anywhere but there, anywhere but there, cut off from the glory of God, cut off from all the good that's in heaven, why will you go there? Don't go there. The Lord Jesus Christ gave his life to pay for the sins of all who would place their trust in him. Have you come to Christ? Today, have you come to Christ? You may have been sitting in a church your entire life, but you've never come to know what Paul knows, and that is with confidence to say, for me to die is gain. If Christ is anything but your life, to die is loss unspeakable loss. The Lord would not have you go to hell. The Lord would not have you reject him forever. The Lord would have you come in faith and repentance. And I assure you, because he has assured us that he will never cast out any who come. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your soul. Hear the promise of Jesus. Our God is a saving God and he only saves sinners. I'm one. Everybody else here is one. Have you come and brought your sin to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and laid it there? He will abundantly save. Beloved, for you, what will the believer gain at death? What are your death benefits? Only these. A glorious home in heaven, a joyous reunion with loved ones and the saints of the ages, a rich inheritance, Immortality incorruptible, sinless perfection in the likeness of Christ. We will know God as we are known by him, and you will have a very personal, immediate presence of the Lord Jesus Christ where you will share perfect fellowship with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And I could stay here forever saying forever. I don't know how you came here this morning. I do know that some of you have come under infirmity. I know that some of you have come experiencing recently the death of a loved one. I know some of you are getting older and you think more about the day of your departure. I know some of you have come assuming you'll never die and you're wrong unless the Lord should return. I want to encourage you yet again because the Bible encourages us to think often about death so that we might be prepared, that we might offer to God a heart of wisdom, 
that we might number our days. Beloved, each one of us will one day die, but Jesus has a message for you, and it is do not fear. Death is not loss. It's gain. Do not fear. Christ has conquered death. It is finished, was his triumphant cry from the cross. The tombstone has been rolled away. The grave clothes are folded. Christ is not there. He has risen. He has ascended to his Father in heaven, and he is returning again to come and to get us, to bring us to himself. It is the Father's express will that he would raise you on the last day. And Jesus always does the will of the Father. I want to close with one more passage. Flip to your left and go to the book of John in chapter 14. I want you to hear it from the words of the Lord himself. To look on it with your own eyes. Don't miss these first seven words. Do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus has just told his disciples he's going away for a time. And they are troubled. And Jesus says to them in the midst of their trouble, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You see, that's the issue, isn't it? For so many of us, the problem is the weakness of our own faith to trust what the scriptures have said. Hear it again as though you were there and Jesus is looking you in the eyeball and he says to you, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm not a liar. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there's that relational language again and that spatial language that where I am, there you may be also. And beloved, again, he appeals to them and he says, men, think. Think for a second. He says in verse 4, you know the way where I am going. And Thomas, dear doubting Thomas, said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Or in short, you do know the way because you know me. Do you know Christ? He'll take care of it. He will take care of it. 
Beloved, heaven's light is left on for you and he will be waiting up. And he will receive you to himself. And the impact of the words that we have been looking at in this brief hour together, the half hour, whatever it's been, in this brief time, these words are intended, do you see it again, to remove the fear that you feel as you think about death and instead to buoy you up and give you a high chin, a lifted head, a, a gaze on Christ and fullness of faith that that day for you will not be a day of disappointment but a day of the greatest rejoicing you have ever known. Whatever your concerns are, look to the Lord. We're told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus partook of flesh and blood. As we come to the table this morning, he partook of flesh and blood for a particular purpose. Listen carefully, that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. He crushed the serpent's head. Through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And that he might free those, get this, who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. What's he saying? You do not need to fear death. The reason I crushed Satan's head, the reason I accomplished what I accomplished on the cross was to set you free from that kind of bondage. Don't fear death. Because Jesus assuredly gives help to the children of Abraham. Brother and sister, I tell you, not one hair on your head will be harmed. For to you, death will only be gain. It will be pure profit. It will be benefits beyond your wildest imagination. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Our Father, we thank you. And that seems such a small thing, Lord, to, to render unto you, oh, for a thousand tongues, Lord, to render unto you. Gratitude for the gift of salvation. Gratitude for eternal life. Gratitude for the spirit of Christ who indwells us and the knowledge that that will give way to eye-to-eye, face-to-face communion forever. Lord, we rejoice in you and we thank you for your great sacrifice. And as we come to the table this morning to remember the cross and to appropriate the, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, yet again, we, we proclaim your return we proclaim your death. We proclaim again eternal life, which is in you and you alone. Lord, let your people be satisfied in you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.